This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 2. You need to be intellectually curious. And that's first and foremost. You need to ask the question, why, where, how, what, and really sort of unpack the issues and be willing to ask those extra questions and understand how and why things are the way they are. Why is being intellectually curious so important to your career success? How can you identify, analyze, and solve business problems like an external consultant? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Aaron Sorensen. Aaron is a partner and chief behavioral scientist at Lotus Blue Consulting, which was formerly known as Axiom Consulting Partners and recently rebranded. Over the course of a two decades long career, Aaron has led hundreds of consulting engagements focused on helping companies to achieve greater results from their people, teams, and organizations. He is known for developing business solutions that are practical, grounded behavioral science, and create sustained results. Aaron frequently speaks at conferences and writes on topics related to organization, talent, and behavioral science. With a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from DePaul University, Aaron's what I call a triple threat one part strategist, one part data scientist, and one part executive whisperer. Today, I'm gonna ask Aaron about his career journey, the skills required to be a successful consultant, and how you and other HR professionals can develop your consulting skills and take your influence to the next level. Aaron, welcome to the future of HR. How are you, my friend? JP, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Tell us more about your role at Axiom. You're head of business transformation, and behavioral science. Yeah. What does that mean? That is a fancy title. <laughs> it is a fancy title. Uh, marketing dresses it up quite a bit. Uh, well, I can, I'll, I'll speak to both of those roles, but uh, maybe first, if I just describe a little bit about it, what Axiom does, it'll make more sense in terms of the role. So Axiom is a management consulting firm, and we have two parts of our business. We have a growth advisory where we focus on things like strategy, strategic pricing, and sales effectiveness. And then we have a transformation side of our business, which includes services related to org design, operating model, leadership and talent and change. So the services and needs around transformation, uh, such as those areas, org design, leadership and talent and change are, are areas that report uh, into me. And then what I think is really interesting and something that I personally am excited about is my role in the firm leading our behavioral science team, because one of the things that we've recognized over the years and, and really a differentiator for how we work with our clients and JP, as you know, it's really heavy in data and evidence-based practices from industrial psychology, social psychology, behavioral economics. So we take behavioral science plus data science and make sure that they, uh, they show up in our services and are really manifested there. So I, I lead the behavioral science team, which includes psychologists and economists. And yeah, so super exciting role. And uh, that's what I do. That's great. And full disclosure, we have worked together in the past, not only at Simpson Consulting, but I've hired Axiom and Aaron because of your ability to bring 
that data and psychology to solve business problems. And I think Axiom is amazing at that, but also I think you are incredibly talented. Talk to us a little bit more about some of the business problems or human capital problems that you and the Axiom team help solve using behavioral science and psychology. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. We, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about a couple cases in particular where we get brought in, let's say a company has a new strategy. They might've worked with one of the big firms and they have this beautiful 150 page deck that describes the market opportunity, the total addressable market, and they don't know how to execute. And they really, they realize that their operating model or their organization that they have today isn't the right one to be able to execute that strategy. So um, we start first by helping them understand what are the capabilities they need in the organization to execute that strategy. How do you design the organization, the roles, the accountabilities, the structures, the information flow uh, to be able to, to accomplish or execute that strategy? But then naturally, from a human capital or talent perspective, the needs often go there. And what, what the conversations look like that we have with uh, the C-suite are things like, our current leaders don't have the right capacity or agility to execute in this new organization, or they're not the right ones. We believe that will take us and create the next sort of growth curve. So the what got us here won't get us there from a organization and talent perspective is absolutely the conversations that we get brought in a lot. And, you know, what's different about how we approach our work is, you know, sure, we have those bread and butter talent management projects like, hey, could you help us think through goal setting? Could you help us think about performance management or we have a succession plan? Absolutely, we do those. But really where we focus is at this intersection of growth and transformation where organization and talent issues come together to help execute strategy. It's really interesting. I think differentiated in the marketplace. Now, this is not a commercial for Axiom, so we're going to have to, I'm going to move on a little bit, but I, I'm a fan of the firm, of course. And so I want to talk more about your consulting career. Is there an experience or a project or a mentor that really impacted your development as a leader? And who was that and what was that? And tell us more about it. Yeah, there's been many, JP. There's been a lot of mentors. There's been a lot of coaches. And I would say there's been a lot of experiences that really have helped me over my career as a consultant. Thinking back to my first consulting job when I joined a small boutique firm called Halverson Consulting, where we were building models for a large Fortune 50 quick service restaurant, thinking about when, when I was at Simpson. And by the way, when I joined Simpson, I didn't realize that leadership performance and rewards actually meant executive compensation. I thought it meant leadership <laughs> development. So I, I really, in thinking back on it, it was really formative for me in my development to be able to understand going into an organization and doing work related to reading proxies and evaluating options using a Black-Scholes model and really understanding a business. And there's been a ton of mentors that have helped me throughout my organization or throughout my consulting career and help me realize that I'm probably not going to be a good executive comp consultant, but really where my passion was and where I started, I think, to, to blossom into a good consultant is when I started working with folks that I know you worked with, Jim Kachansky, uh, Mike Norman, Don Roos, those folks 
really out of that Raleigh office and then that LA office that uh, that really helped me think through how does how does a business you know how, how do you help a business perform how do you help a business become more productive how do you help a business be more agile agile wasn't even a word really yet by taking a look at the intersection of organization and talent and really fine tuning those linkages so my formative experiences were in those projects for big companies and you know, also, I would say working for some of the pro sports leagues that we did at the time, applying analytics to their officials and really trying to understand how you use data and how you use behavioral science to understand performance and improve performance. I did work with all of those folks as well, and, and not maybe as closely in the same same way, but I know Mike Norman, obviously, and Jim Kachansky were terrific. And tell me, when you think about Aaron, your first 10 years of your career, do you feel like that did that really set you up for success going forward? Is it those early years at Halverson and then Simpson that got you to feel like where you are today in some ways and prepared you to be the consultant you are today and the, the business leader you are? Yeah, I mean, I would say it uh, those experiences, and I think what would be, and again, I only have my experiences to draw from, so I can't, I can't really compare, but I can compare them to folks that I work with from other firms. I mean, the... I, and I think JP, you worked at IBM at one point, right? You had IBM experience, yeah. right? I mean, I was always in a small firm where real close to the action, you're in smaller teams, I don't know, three to five people. That's kind of how we operate today. I mean, we have some teams that are 10, 15 people, but when you're in a smaller team and you have an accountability to the client, you have an accountability to each other, on that team and ultimately the partner or the, the the principal is influencing the work it's high stakes and you can't you really can't hide you know like you could maybe at other organizations where they have 50 people on a team you're stuck in an office the work is sliced up between different pieces of a project i mean i thought that those experiences to have that personal accountability for just creating impact and results and to be able to pull experiences and skills that I had, whether it's statistical analysis, understanding organizations, really being able to analyze a company through that leadership, uh, the executive comp experience and understand how to look at a business. I think those are really formative in terms of you know, becoming the consultant that I am today. Absolutely. I think that's a big benefit when you are in the smaller teams, you got probably more time with some of those leaders. And that's, that is really one of the keys, right? To continue to grow is to get that mentorship. And, and probably what we're trying to do today is provide that. Now, one question, it's on our list, Aaron, so I'm going off the script, but did you ever consider jumping internal and going in <laughs> HR? I, uh, I had a fantastic opportunity at one point. Yeah, I did. I was really close. It, uh, gosh, I probably, I'd probably be very wealthy right now if I would have done it in terms of the options. But uh, it was a big tech company. They offered me to go run performance management out in Menlo Park. Gosh, this would have been 2003, 2004 ish. And uh, I, for whatever reason, I really liked. Chicago. I just got married and there was no way my my wife was going out to, I mean, back then it was like, okay, if you're going to go internal, you're going to go internal. And for me, it just wasn't in the cards. So 
Um, I consider that opportunity. I've considered some other opportunities that, that have been really interesting, but I got to tell you, JP, I mean, as, as much as sometimes I look back on my career, I'm like, all right, well, yeah, it would be pretty cool working at like a Google or a Facebook or a fill in the blank blue chip brand. At the same time, you know, I love the fact that I have so much variety in my job and probably a little bit too much variety because I mean, my job right now, I get to be a leader in the firm. I'm at the core of the business. I get to run a practice. I get to build a practice. I am the business versus supporting the business. And that's really exciting. The interesting client problems that we get brought with, brought that, that are brought to us rather, um, that's what keeps me energized and in the game. Absolutely. And I think it kind of raises an interesting point when you think about the work, right? What gets you excited? What motivates you? And when you are like you are as a consultant, an external consultant, you are really, you are the business, right? And you probably have to be more commercially oriented, but you've got to continue to find clients and serve them well to continue to make the firm grow. What are some of the important personality traits that someone would need to have to work in and be successful in human capital consulting? Yeah, that's a good question. By the way, on your point about commercial, I mean, the, the dirty secret that you don't really realize until you become more senior in law firms, accounting firms, advisory firms, is eventually to roll up, to, to grow, you have to sell. Like, that's just the way it works. And I think what happens in firms, professional service firms, is everybody goes through that formative experience where you're like, okay, I see to be a partner. I see to be a principal. I see to be a practice leader that you got to be able to bring in work to be able to support a team. That's where you start to get people that you say, all right, you know what? That's just not for me. But I would say to your question about skills and what's really required to be successful, I think foundationally, I mean, we, and I would say even at our firm, like we are not a firm where we hire, I won't say we won't ever do this, but we're not a firm that hires business developers just to go develop business and toss it over the fence and have consultants tackle those problems. I've been in firms that have models like that. I know a lot of other firms have models like that. And I think in some firms, those are successful. Um, for the type of firm that, that Axiom is, what we believe and what I've seen work really well is at its core, you need to be intellectually curious. And that's first and foremost, you need to ask the question, why, where, how, what, and really sort of unpack the issues and be willing to ask those extra questions and understand how and why things are the way they are. That's number one. I would also say, as you start advancing in a career, being able to look at something systemically, right? So understanding that, oh, well, you know, why does a organization want to rethink how they do performance management? Oh, they want greater productivity in the workforce. Well, why aren't they getting greater productivity in the workforce? So maybe it's because, maybe it's because their strategy is actually not very clear and there's not enough focus. And why isn't that strategy? Like, to be able to understand the different parts and pieces in an organization, think about top line, bottom line, pull apart a PL, understanding how different capabilities ladder up to that. I think that's super, super important. Ultimately, to be a great consultant, you got to work with people, right? So you got to be, you got to work with clients. You also got to be able to work with your consulting teams to be able to 
influence the dynamics and shape shape the work to a desirable outcome. Now, really insightful, and I, I totally agree. The intellectually curious piece is just something that will differentiate people. How are you assessing someone being intellectually curious during an interview? Oh, that's a great question. It really is, and I would say we're always on. We're always pursuing better ways to be able to understand intellectual curiosity. I would tell you that what we do is we use a behaviorally based interviewing approach. Tell me about a time where you had to solve a really complex problem that had, you know, these different dimensions in it and give me the situation. Tell me how you approached it. What was the result? So we we do that. We also use we use some assessments, so some standardized assessments to understand critical thinking. But I got to tell you, I mean, really where we've found critical thinking, intellectual curiosity come into play is how the candidate interacts with us and how curious they are about what our strategy is, what it's like to be part of a team, what works and what doesn't work in terms of people that have been successful at the organization. It's the types of questions that they ask us that really gives the signal whether they're going to be a fit. And, you know, it's interesting when you brought up that question, I mean, we're a small business, right? So um, for us to, we can't compete with all the big firms. We just don't have the resources. And what we find is the clients that are our best clients are also the clients that are intellectually curious. And the distinction typically is the following. It's like, well, you know, some organizations, they just want you to do an assessment and to provide a benchmark. Well, if you've done benchmarking before, we all know that they don't really provide much help. It's a good reference point, but at the end of the day, a benchmark isn't going to solve your business problem. What we like to find in our clients that, and just like, you know, JP, what you and, and Holly did when, when we were working together, who are intellectually curious about the pursuit of truth, Right. And we believe in a hypothesis-driven scientific method. So what are the questions that you have about your business that are preventing you from either growing top line or executing efficiently? All right. So then what are the research questions? What are the data that we can bring to bear to answer those? And how do we use tools and data science and behavioral science to test those hypotheses and come up with recommendations that have evidence? Not a lot of organizations are willing to go that far with us, you know, so Many organizations, all right, you know, give me the benchmark and uh, we'll call it a day. We'll figure it out. And I think that's an important distinction too. Like that's what we look for. And that's what we like in our clients as well. You want to meet your clients where they're at. So some might be okay with that. But to your point where you get your best work is when people really are wanting to dig in with you and the team and bring that intellectual curiosity to bear. Let's talk a little about consulting or being a consultant it can be a little bit of a loaded word. So what is a commonly held belief about being a consultant that you passionately disagree with? I would think some of the common misconceptions of consultants are that we really don't care about implementation and we're just tossing, tossing it over the fence. And in fact, I, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that we will stay and we will help. And we're a fixed fee firm. We're not a power by the hour until the solution is implemented and working. Right. So I think that common misconception is that we're, you know, you pay a lot of money for Harvard and Booth and Kellogg MBAs 
to come up with a beautiful PowerPoint, toss it over the fence and have fun. Again, certainly there's examples of that, but that's not the firms that I've been a part of. JP, I know that's not the firm that you've been a part of. And that's just not how we operate. I think there's also these misconceptions. Well, I would say there's firms that are on different ends of the spectrum. There's expert firms and then there's collaboration firms. Expert firms are those firms that, let's say you're in financial services, you might have partners, you might have teams that, you know, a couple hundred people that have worked in all different aspects of financial services and have, they know they, you are going to them for an answer. And then there's firms where they're collaborative firms, where you're working with that firm to create the right answer for your business. And I think people believe that all consultants are just the expert model. They have the answer, they come in, they throw it over the fence. What I hope our clients would say about the way we work is we can balance that spectrum. We're collaborative first, but expert when we need to be, but we're also not expert when we don't know the answer. The famous saying is like a consultant comes in and takes your watch and tells you what time it is, I think something like that. But that's that's not the that's not the brand that we want to project for sure. I think those are definitely some misconceptions. One of the realizations that I had it, when I was a consultant, it wasn't that I was smarter than the clients, but that I was able to think about their problem for eight hours a day and a lot of times internal this is just one of 15 projects you have and you have 30 minutes to think about it. And so that collaboration is really important because a lot of times the consultant would help you push your thinking, right? What are consulting skills and how would HR professionals, how do they develop those type of skills? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great question, JP. We'd have to look at the literature and psychology of whether or not you can teach your intellectual curiosity. I don't know if you can, but I think you can teach how to look at a problem systemically and also how to think critically. So that, I think that's just a foundational skill, whether you're in consulting or whether you're internal and you're in an OD role or an OE role or, or an internal consultant. So again, I, I think what we call our critical thinking framework. So Barbara Minto, she was, uh, if I have the story right, and Minto, Barbara Minto, I believe was the first female partner at McKinsey. And what she was known for is fantastic storytelling and ways to communicate information that would influence people to make decisions and drive results. I'm probably butchering the story, but that's kind of what she was known for. She wrote a book called The Mento Method. And basically it's the way you tell a story, you outline the situation, right? It's usually sort of obvious. What are the facts, the complication, which is, you know, something that needs to be considered and that causes your audience to think critically, more deeply at the issue from maybe a different lens. And then what the central question is or central questions are that need to be answered such that you can frame the business problem and scope that business problem appropriately. I think that a lot of organizations that I've worked with in particular in HR, they they don't frame the problem as comprehensively as they could. They look at a symptom and they go after a symptom versus framing the situation, the complication and the central question, right? So I think that first piece is, is really important. Then being able to use a framework, a critical thinking framework like the scientific method where we say, okay, 
we have these central questions. How do we answer those questions? What are our hypotheses? And then how do we use data, both quantitative and qualitative, to answer those questions and to come up with recommendations that are evidence-based and that will help us address the problem? I think that piece up front sounds super, super simple, but it's really, really hard. Once you can do that, then it's all about storytelling. It's all about communicating. How can you use data? And you know, usually in today's world, it's quantitative data, but qualitative data as well, to tell a story that impels action. That's just so critical. I think that's the foundational skill, whether you're consulting internally or in an external capacity. That's yeah, a great book. And I have not read that book, so I'm going to have to pick that up, but I'll definitely put it in the show notes. But what I, what I really hear you saying is that it's about having a framework really for critical thinking and approaching a problem. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, Aaron, I know this is a little, maybe a little deeper dive, but when you talk about hypothesis around a business problem, give us a couple examples. Maybe, maybe like using turnover, employee turnover as a simple example, just because I want to make sure people can follow along. Yeah. It's been a while since we've been in school and a lot of us <laughs> haven't done you know, science or hypothesis testing. Yeah. So I'll give you one right now. And JP, you know quite well, we got a product called InclusiveX and we're working with some organizations right now on on particular use cases. And one of the use cases that we're pursuing is with an 8 billion logistics company. And what the business problem that they're encountering is that their female employees are not being promoted at the rate that they want. And in particular, that promotion rate of female employees has even declined over the course of the pandemic. And one of the things that we're doing with this Inclusivix product is understanding why that's occurring, right? Because they really can't unpack the problem. So our hypothesis is that the reason that female managers and directors are declining in their promotion rates is that the strength of their networks is eroding and has eroded because of hybrid work and different pressures that are on women as a result of the pandemic that are in that particular age group. So again, our hypothesis is that strength of network is deteriorating in women mid-level manager roles. And as a result, that promotion rate is declining. So we're using data to determine whether or not that hypothesis will be supported or refuted. That's a great example. And a great problem to be solving as well. Right. So, all right, well, one last question before we switch over and talk a little more about the future of HR. What's one piece of advice that you would give to someone starting out as a human capital consultant? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, know the business. No, really, really know the business. And, and I, you know, I would even point back to that fortuitous, maybe accidental experience that I had when I went into, when I went into Simpson and I was looking at proxies. Like, I didn't even know what a proxy was, right? And to be able to dig into a 10K and understand why a business is set up like that and really understand a PL, I think that is absolutely fundamental. If you don't understand where the levers are in the business, um, you know, you're just, you're really just nibbling around the edges and putting in process and policies without a full understanding of 
where the value is created. I would say, I think that is so essential. And I'd also, I'd also offer up is, you know, Michael Porter's um, competitive advantage, sort of understanding value chains, understanding capabilities and how businesses compete. I think that's really important to having an understanding of the fundamental building blocks of organizations. So how a business makes money, how a business, what are, what is a capability, how are capabilities assembled in an organization to create value for customers? And how do you ensure that those capabilities are essentially unleashed to the customer? I think that's, that those are the fundamentals. What suggestions do you have for the next generation of HR leaders coming up? How do they build that business mindset, those commercial skills that you're talking about? Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking like pr- practically speaking, I if you should we read the Wall Street Journal every day. You really should. I mean, at a minimum, read the, I uh, can't remember what it's called, the sort of the salmon bar on the left-hand side. You should read that. I mean, HBR is great. Fast Company, Inc., all those are great. But if you don't understand fundamentally what's happening in business and the economy and supply chain and interest rates, you're going you're gonna to look out of touch. So you need to have a general understanding of what's happening in business. And I would say, given the pace that things move, you got to start there. So that's thing one. I would, with all of the Udemy, Coursera, LinkedIn courses, I would understand how to read a P&L, how to break down a P&L. I would also go check out, there's a book called Understanding Porter because the actual Michael Porter competitive advantage book is really heavy. I would check that out. And I think it's a really, it's by Joe McGretta, Understanding Porter. It's a great book that talks about competitive advantage, capabilities, how you build upon that. I would start there and then, you know, think about Think about, and this is an interesting, it's an interesting trap that I often find HR folks doing is, well, you know, capabilities are the same thing as competencies and getting wrapped around the axle around language and nomenclature. Basically what we're talking about in terms of capabilities and strategy, capabilities represent how people process technology and data come together in a repeatable way to create competitive advantage, right? competencies are the skills that people have. But at the end of the day, it's how do you create those flywheels in a business to allow it to serve stakeholders or take market share or compete? I think understanding that is, is so, so important. Uh, Aaron, that's like a masterclass right there. Lots to unpack. And I think the uh, Understanding Porter is a, a great book for folks to read. I agree with you. You have a unique viewpoint. Another reason why I was really excited to talk with you today is you work with HR leaders. You're working with businesses every day. You are really tackling the challenges that every HR professional is trying to tackle. You just get to do it with different companies across different industries, right? And I'm wondering, you think about over your career, the last 10 years or so, what has fundamentally changed about the field of HR since you started working in it? And what's not changed, but maybe should? Yeah, gosh, JP, we could have a whole episode just on that. Um, and I, you, I know you'll appreciate this, given your, your experiences in talent acquisition. If you think about how HR adds value with HR capabilities, really helping the organization build a talent supply chain is so essential in HR, right? 
projecting your brand out in the market for talent, sourcing talent, screening talent, getting them in the door. That is now a digital play. That role is so technically advanced and digitized, just like digital marketing is, that I would say that trend maybe last five years has accelerated, in particular as a pandemic. It looks, talent acquisition organizations in particular, the digital or the recruitment marketing looks completely and radically different. And no longer is it the recruiter picking up the phone. I mean, it is, it is an arms race when it comes to digital tools and that has radically changed. Yeah, that's really true. Especially around like how you think about whether it's LinkedIn, Indeed, all the different ways to find candidates. You know, the reality is they've done a lot of research on you, right? They already know about your organization. They know your CEO is. They've seen feedback on Glassdoor. And, you know, now it's it's really, it has changed. People are much more educated about those choices. And I think that's what you're seeing sometimes impacting the war for talent. If you don't have a strong brand, if your employment brand isn't distinctive, magnetic, and compelling, and you can't back that up, that could be very challenging. Yeah. And I just think that just operationally, I mean, we, you mentioned, yeah, we're hiring. Absolutely. I mean, we, we're running into this even right now. Like how do you like pixel trackers and job postings and programmatic marketing, right? I mean, it is a different ball game requiring very, very different skills. And if, even if yeah. you think about, so there's that piece, which has radically changed. I would say that also from a employee experience kind of talent management standpoint, the, the use of technology to enable that experience, those continuous conversations around performance, being able to sort of mass customize those employee experiences to their own unique needs, the impact of hybrid and virtual, gosh, that has just radically changed. And, you know, in particular, if you're somebody in talent that hasn't kept track of all of the technological changes and even how to think about an employee experience platform, the data that are being captured, how nudges can be applied, how to leverage passive data, active data, you're going to be you're going to be surpassed by the next generation of digitally astute HR pros who know how to create those experiences because that's that is just so 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 different. I mean, heads of talent these days, you have to understand technology data, human-centered design, experience, those are the core tenets, not, not the, hey, how do we run talent reviews? How do we do succession? It's a very different game. So I think that's changed a lot. That also has changed HR operations. I think employee relations generally has pretty much stayed the same. The HR business partner role has become so much more strategic than it used to be, right? So I believe at least what I've seen in the larger organizations that we work with, the HR business partner role has become so critical as a liaison between understand, well, translating the strategy of a business into demand for talent and then shaping that demand into requirements to drive that talent supply chain and then ensuring you have the right talent at the right place at the right time. I mean, that business partner role is really, really challenging as a result of all the dynamics that are happening now. And it's similar, but I would say the strategic focus of it has, has only been elevated. It's not a, it's not an HR helper anymore, for sure. The world has shifted and that has, I think, put demands on people 
to learn and keep up and really be, like you said in the beginning, intellectually curious. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's really important. All right, my last question for you is, what is one word that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Oh, JP, that's a good one. I'm not going to do a throwaway word like agile. One word that's intellectually curious. I mean, it feels like that that might be the word for the day. um, I think it's about, honestly, I think it's probably about experience. It's about, it's about really thinking critically and strategically about the experiences that are most important in the business for the, for your workforce and being active, strategic, deliberate, uh, and leveraging technology to, to always aspire to create those experiences. I think that's what it's going to be about for the next decade. You know, even if you look at, and I, I think I, I gave a talk about this a while ago, if you look over the last 40 years, and I'm going to totally butcher this, but it was like, it was all about the job enrichment era in the 70s, I think, right? 60s, 70s. Like, how do we create more interesting jobs? Okay. The next era was like, oh, satisfaction matters, right? We did linkage analysis. Oh, having happy employees leads to happy customers, which leads to better financial results. Great. And then I think what we discovered is there's a, the employee survey firms discovered there's a market for relabeling and rebranding and thinking about it more deeply around engagement. So they said, all right, it's about engagement and really understanding this sort of the will and the skill, the drive and the vigor and commitment and how those all package up to create engagement. Okay. That was the next era. And then we got into this sort of EVP mass customization and experiences. I think we're, I think experiences are still going to be that trend but it's gonna be on how do you ensure those experiences are meaningful? How do you ensure they're inclusive? And how do you ensure those connections are happening in the organization? I think that's what the future is gonna be about. Aaron, thank you so much. We are smarter for having you on the show today. Your insights were terrific. Well, thanks, uh, Appreciate everything. And where can people find you? What's the best way to get a hold of you if they want to, to follow you? Well, listen, I feel like I, I probably have a job to do. Like I should say, oh, here's my Instagram handle. Here's all this. I would, <laughs> right. Are you in TikTok I, I yet? Haven't, I haven't sure. done yet. I, yeah, I, uh, I got to take a pay. I got to get my TikTok uh, handle up uh, yet. But <laughs> LinkedIn's probably the most easy, the easiest way. Because as you know, we're, we're going through a rebrand ourselves, And so we got exciting news coming up. But uh, LinkedIn's the easiest way for now. Awesome. Aaron, thanks again so much for being on the future of HR. Appreciate it. Thank you, JP. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. My thanks again to Aaron Sorensen for his insights on being intellectually curious and how to develop your consulting skills. You can find Aaron on LinkedIn or on his website, lotusblueconsulting.com. In addition, Aaron had a couple of great book suggestions on how to improve your business acumen that I will put in the show notes along with links to his website. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. Also, I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, as well as what potential guests and topics that you'd like to see in the future. 
That does it for this week. We'll be back next week with Holly Tyson, Chief People Officer at Cushman Wakefield, one of the world's largest commercial real estate firms. In our conversation with Holly, she will share her advice for aspiring CHROs, the importance of speaking truth to power, and importantly, how to do it, and why the future of HR is all about return on investment. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.